This Israel report is brought to you by the Blue Agency. Your Israel property is in good hands. Owning properties in Israel can be a great investment, but challenging to manage if you're based abroad. The Blue Agency will manage every aspect of your property, finding and vetting tenants, maintaining your property and getting it rental ready, negotiating contracts and collecting rentals, reporting back to you regularly. The Blue Agency has built a reputation for trust and confidentiality over 20 years. The Blue Agency, your Israel property is in good hands. Contact us at www.thebueagency.com. The Israel Report for the latest news and insights with Anthony Reich. Anthony Reich, Bokertov, good morning. How are you? Bokertov. Um, so I know that we've become very, very accustomed to buying things like drinks from these vending machines at petrol stations and in other public places. But the question is, would you be willing to buy frozen meat hmm. from a vending machine? Um, and that is the idea of um, an Israeli meat manufacturer by the name of Itzik Luzon, who um, goes by the name Itzik the Great. And he has decided to bring out a meat machine, which is effectively a vending machine that sells frozen meat. He wants to put it in petrol stations and in malls um, and in other public places. And the idea is, according to um, what he says, the idea is to be able to bring the restaurant meat experience to the table of the private consumer easily and efficiently without having to look for a butchery or anything else near your home. I suspect it's all about cutting out the middleman mm. probably mm. rather than trying to bring the butchery experience to a petrol station. But um, would you guys buy your well, frozen meat from a vending machine at a petrol station? Well, I think here we have a different problem because of load shedding. I'd imagine <laughs> that South Africans would be a little skeptical about doing that as a start unless they knew mm. that there was a decent backup. But it is a strange thing. It's probably, as you were talking about it, I was thinking maybe it's just because we're not used to it. You know, if we got so used to the it, thing. I mean, then probably so we many- would. Yeah, I mean, there's so many things that we buy from vending machines these days, even food and whatever, all kinds of things. Um, obviously, this meat machine will be equipped with special temperature sensors and linked to a fairly sophisticated system that warns of any temperature changes and stuff like that. So there is a level of sensitivity around that. And clearly, the food that's going to be in there is really all going to be packaged for like barbecue mm. style. Well, just thinking, um, if you're craving an entrecot, but the butcher's closed, you know, I guess I would. Certainly or I'm, you've forgotten to buy something yes. for, you know, your, your weekend barbecue, exactly. dry, whatever it is. Yes. Um, so that, um, I just wondered what, what the listeners would yeah. think about that. Just while we're talking about little snippets, um, the, the headlines this morning uh, is all about the prime minister and his wife being moved into the Waldorf Astoria Hotel to mm. stay for mm. a few days. Of course, so all at the taxpayers' expense. So tone deaf. Um, and, yeah, I mean, apparently this is because their home in Rehov Aza in Gaza Street in Jerusalem, which is their private home, um, is uh, not inhabitable for the next few days due to the fact that it's undergoing some sort of renovation to increase the security 
the Prime Minister's official residence in Belfour Street is undergoing quite a substantial renovation and is uninhabitable by the Prime Minister. And in fact, um, the previous Prime Ministers, uh, Yair Lapid and uh, Naftali Bennett, also didn't live at the Prime Minister's residence in Belfour Street because it, uh, it can't be lived in right now due to the extensive renovation that is being undertaken there. I actually thought that um, they decided to put the Prime Minister now into another residence, which is across the road in the same street, in Balfour Street. Certainly that's where um, mm-hmm. an office is being run for the Prime Minister. But it seems as if, though, he's actually living in his private home in Rehova Azza, which is really not that far away from the official residence of the Prime Minister in Balfour Street, only just down the road. So as far as um, um, convenience is concerned, it's, it's, it's uh, just as convenient uh, in terms of location. Some people are thinking that the Prime Minister should rather be living in his private home in Kisaria, which is also being funded by taxpayer money for security and for staff and things like that. And they feel that if we're already paying taxpayers money to, to keep that home uh, running, that he should live there while Rukhov Azza is uninhabitable. Um, but I have some sympathy with the Prime Minister's view on this because Kisari is not exactly handy to Jerusalem. Mm, and for him mm. to be able to get in and out of Jerusalem in order to undertake unofficial business is not so simple. Um, having said that, the Waldorf Astoria is by far the premier hotel on King David Street in the central part of Jerusalem. And there are prices that have been bandied about as to how much it might be costing the taxpayer to house the the Prime Minister in a luxury suite and an adjacent office in the Waldorf Astoria along with all of his uh, security entourage. Um, but apparently it's only going to be for a few days, but yeah. clearly has attracted a lot of As negative publicity. But of course, Anthony, if you've, and I would invite the Prime Minister Netanyahu to pop down to the Begin, the, the Menachem Begin Museum, which, uh, which is a great museum and has a very, very nice restaurant at the end of it, but that's not the point, is uh, what they've done is recreated uh, Menachem Begin's living room. And you could see how this man lived. Uh, it certainly wasn't uh, the the epitome of luxury at all. And if you look at how Golda Meir lived herself, uh, it, it's a, it reflects a very, very different approach to Israel, to themselves, maybe more than anything. But uh, if mm. they take a leaf out of either of those books, they won't be staying at the Waldorf Astoria. Um, that's certainly true, and I've also seen Ben Gurion's home in Steboka, which is also very frugal um, and, and, and very, very low key. I think there is a, a, a counter side to that particular argument, and one of the interesting things is how it's seen from the outside if you are willing to be too frugal and too, too, um, too um, um, slim down in the way that you present yourself. And I know for sure that when you go to the Arab world and even people going to um, visit uh, the Arab world going on business, um, it's always a very important statement as to which hotel you stay in and whether you have the appropriate suite. It sort of um, it, it, it radiates a type of approach and a type of standing that you have. And business people who go to the Arab world are always advised to make sure that they stay in an appropriate luxury hotel which radiates a certain um, type of standing that this person has so that when they're trying to meet with senior business people or senior government officials in that country that they would feel that it is appropriate to meet with you because you are of a certain standing. Mm-hmm. So there is a lot of 
um, there, there is a lot of social acceptance that goes on. And if Prime Minister Netanyahu wants to um, create a relations with Saudi Arabia, for example, and he has hopes of meeting the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia one day, then he would definitely need to radiate Waldorf Astoria as opposed to a corner hotel um, to try and save the um, taxpayer money. So there, there are different mm, elements mm, to this, and sure. I think we need to be sensitive to that too. Indeed. Israel's Security Cabinet met yesterday to discuss the recent waves of terror attacks. What did the Security Cabinet conclude? Well, we don't really know, I think, is the simple answer to that, because um, all they said was that um, the ministers uh, agreed to redouble efforts to fight Terrorism. That really was the kind of the best message that we could get um, from the security cabinet. And interestingly, the security cabinet meeting was called by the national security minister Itamar Ben-Gvir after uh, a number of Israelis were killed in uh, terror attacks over the last few days. And um, the meeting was held at the prime minister's office in Jerusalem. And it was attended by uh, not only Ben Gvir and the Prime Minister, but indeed also by Defence Minister Yoav Gallant. I think that a lot of this was really about trying once again just to reinforce support for the IDF, because that message was made by the Prime Minister, where he declared that the Security Cabinet supports the IDF and other members of Israel's security apparatus in safeguarding the citizens of Israel and in the fight against terrorists. So um, I think that that really was a key message coming out of the security cabinet. It's not clear what other decisions Mm, were taken, mm. and I have little doubt that there was a lot more that was discussed and agreed upon rather than what seems to be relatively bland statements that were made after the meeting. But I have little doubt that support for the IDF at the moment is a very, very key statement, given all of the questioning of the uh, chief, uh, the, the general staff of the IDF and how they have or have not supported people who have refused to turn up for um, reserve duty and whether that's the right or the wrong thing. There are a lot of words, criticisms, uh, doubts that have been expressed about the leadership of the IDF, and I think that this meeting was just an opportunity to reinforce that we really need the IDF, and even if the general staff, the chief of general staff, other senior generals may well be supportive of the protesters and those who have decided not to turn up for reserve duty, and even though they might not be exercising their right to punish those individuals, which they have apparently Mm, mm. under law, um, but we still need to support them because guess what? Without the IDF, Israel is not going to be able to survive, and the IDF are doing a pretty good job of safeguarding our security and even though we um, have come across this whole wave of terror attacks which we understand is being instigated by Iran in the most part and in fact the the attack that we discussed yesterday in Hebron seems to now clearly be plastered on Hamas even though the Islamic uh, the the, um, Al-Aqsa Master Brigade were the ones who came out laying uh, taking responsibility for it it seems as if the Hamas's name is really painted all over that terror attack And without the IDF and without the great job that the soldiers are doing and the general staff, the senior generals, I think that we would be nowhere. And so I think Mm, that this meeting mm. yesterday was really just an opportunity to reinforce that. Members of Israeli-Ethiopian community protested yesterday against the way in which authorities have handled a hit-and-run accident in which an Ethiopian child was killed. What happened, Anthony? 
So this is a very interesting story in a number of aspects. First of all, the initial incident actually took place back in May of this year when four-year-old Rafael Adana was walking um, in Netanya with his grandfather. They, it's not clear exactly where they were walking, whether they're walking on the road or whether they're walking on the pavement. It was a Shabbat, um, and what happened was that uh, there was an accident in which a 70-year-old woman apparently knocked the little boy down in the road and didn't stop. She then proceeded on her way. He was quite seriously injured, critically wounded on the scene. He was taken to hospital, and he died a few days later. Now, um, the, uh, the, the Ethiopian community are up in arms over the fact that even though this woman did actually turn herself into police a few hours later and she provided testimony about what happened in that car accident and apparently she was released to house arrest at least for a certain period of time it's not clear whether she's still under house arrest or not but she was released to house arrest and um, the Ethiopian community feel that she hasn't been sufficiently severely dealt with and that this represents a certain aspect of discrimination against the Ethiopian community. What they're saying is that if this little boy was somebody else, was not a member of the Ethiopian community, then this woman would have been more severely dealt with. Now, there are some questions as to whether he was um, in the road when he was walking or whether he was actually on the pavement when he was mm-hmm. walking. But I think that there is an initial um, uh, there is an initial charge here against a hit and run. When somebody hits, has an accident, is involved in an accident, particularly involving um, a person, a child, and someone is injured, then that driver has the obligation to stop right away. This woman did not stop. And even though she did turn herself in, there is a charge about hit and run. She claims that um, she didn't realize that she had struck anything. She didn't feel the vehicle strike anything. Um, It sounds a little far-fetched, but she, for whatever reason, didn't stop. And so that clearly is a criminal offense which should be dealt with. Um, What's interesting for me is that the members of the Ethiopian community are so outraged by the way in which this has been dealt with that they blocked main arteries in Tel Aviv the day before yesterday protesting against the treatment of this particular case. And it shows to me in some respects that the Ethiopian community have come of age in Israel because they are generally a very gentle community who don't like to create any um, waves, who don't like to create any protest and, and to make themselves felt. Mm, mm. And yet they have now decided that they are going to come out and protest and close down the main arteries in Tel Aviv in order to make their voices felt. And it shows to me that they are kind of becoming more Israeli. Yeah, in their and I think that's important, if you want the, to be, the right to protest. If, Absolutely. Yeah. If you want to be heard and you want your voices to, you know, to, to, to be felt across, then you need to somehow uh, make some loud statements. And they've certainly done so in the name of um, young Rafael Adana, who unfortunately was killed in that accident. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are members of uh, the Ethiopian community who are members of Knesset, and they have come out protesting, saying that there is no equality before the law and that this country has a certain level of discrimination towards the Ethiopian community, perhaps because they are considered to be more gentle mm, and mm. quieter and not making waves. And perhaps that's yeah, the reason why that's, that's what um, they have kind of mm. been uh, taken advantage of. But that's not going to be the case going forward. They have decided that they're going to make themselves felt. 
Um, and so um, we're not quite sure exactly now how this case is going to be dealt with, but clearly there is a case to be answered uh, mm-hmm. about the death of this young boy. Anthony Racha, we'll talk tomorrow about the fact that the mayor of New York City, Eric Adams, is on a three-day visit to Israel. That we'll chat about tomorrow. A couple of uh, messages. The uh, Gimple says there's better ice cream for Sarah at the Waldorf. Henry says, talking about the meat, uh, it's a great idea for South Africa, the meat vending machines. We could have a minister of meat vending machines. And uh, Anonymous uh, says, when you have other people's money from taxpayers, you can do whatever you, you can do like the ANC and do like it, whatever you like with few repercussions. And it doesn't matter if you're a democracy or a dictatorship that uh, they all operate, uh, they all uh, operate the same way. That is from Anonymous. It is 8 o'clock. We'll catch Anthony Rock tomorrow morning at 7.45. That Israel Report was brought to you by the Blue Agency. Your Israel property is in good hands. Owning properties in Israel can be a great investment, but challenging to manage if you're based abroad. The Blue Agency will manage every aspect of your property, finding and vetting tenants, maintaining your property and getting it rental ready, negotiating contracts and collecting rentals, reporting back to you regularly. The Blue Agency has built a reputation for trust and confidentiality over 20 years. The Blue Agency, your Israel property is in good hands. Contact us at www.thebueagency.com.